You're listening to the free ad-sponsored re-release of American Elections Wicked Game, a weekly march through every presidential election from 1789 to 2024. To listen to all episodes right now ad-free, go to intohistory.com. Subscribers there enjoy ad-free listening, early access, bonus content, and more from a growing collection of great history podcasts. Start your free trial today at intohistory.com. It's winter, 1852. A man named Mr. Haley enters a Kentucky tavern in need of a drink. He's in a surly mood. Haley recently purchased a slave, a boy the age of five, from a plantation owner. But the boy's mother, hearing her son had been sold, took the boy and escaped into Ohio across the frozen river. The slave trader's mood changes, however, when an old business acquaintance of his enters the tavern. Well, by providence, I do believe that's Tom Loker. Entering the tavern is Loker, a brawny, muscular man dressed in a coat of buffalo skin. He's a slave hunter, and a good one. Though the mother and her boy have managed to escape into a free state, since the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, men like Loker have legal authority to enter the North and force runaway slaves back into captivity. Loker, how are you? I'm in a devil of a hobble, and you must help me out. Haley gives Loker the rundown of his situation with the boy and his mother, And then he offers Loker a deal. You catch the boy for me, you can keep the mother, or sell her off if you like. Now, Mr. Haley, if you want us to undertake to catch this your gal, you've got to fork over $50 flat down. Why, Tom, you're unreasonable. We're booked for five weeks to come. Suppose we leaves all and goes to bushwhacking around after your youngins and doesn't catch the gal. What then? Would you pay us a cent? Now flap down your 50. If we get the job and it pays, I'll hand it back. If we don't, it's for our trouble. That's fair, ain't it? Haley knows that for Loker, it's all about the money, which he's making hand over fist. Business is booming. Loker takes out a small notebook and makes notes as he asks. Now, Mr. Haley, you saw this here gal when she landed? To be sure, plain as I see you. Most likely she's took in somewhere, but where's the question? We must cross the river tonight, no mistake. I suppose you've got good dogs? First rate, but what's the use? You ain't got nothing or hers to smell on. Well, yes, I have. Here's the shawl she left on the bed in her hurry, though the dogs might damage the gal. This is the sort to be sold for her looks. That's her consideration. Our dogs tore a feller half to pieces once, down in Mobile before we could get them off him. After the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act on September 18, 1850, slave hunters like Loker acted in the North with impunity and often with the help of Northern authorities. Many Northerners felt helpless but more felt like taking up arms. For a woman named Harriet Beecher Stowe, the best way to fight the Fugitive Slave Act was through the use of a pen. Loker and Haley are not, in fact, historical figures. They're characters from her novel called Uncle Tom's Cabin. Stitching together true stories of former slaves, Stowe's novel opened the eyes of many in the North to the human tragedy of slavery. And after it was released on March 20th, 1852, the novel sold 300,000 copies in the first year. The words of one woman helped galvanize a political movement and rallied the North around the idea that the days of compromise were over. Wicked Game is sponsored by NetSuite. There's that saying. 
That's just the cost of doing business, and it makes it sound like there's nothing you can do about certain expenses. And yeah, sure, if you run a business, there are certain things that are just going to cost what they cost, and recently they've probably begun costing more. But not everything is just the cost of doing business. Smart companies know their numbers and can reduce their costs. One great way of doing both is switching to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you'll reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You'll cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite this year. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com elections. That's netsuite.com slash elections, netsuite.com slash elections. Wicked Game is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Think about that phrase. Visualize it. The metaphor is that something is literally on your chest, weighing you down, pressing down upon you, that when you lay in bed at night, there's a heavy burden bearing down on you. And everyone has these weights, deep concerns, feelings of guilt, anger, or misery we try to keep to ourselves. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. No waiting rooms, no traffic. It couldn't be simpler. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash elections today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash elections. From Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Elections Wicked Game. The Compromise of 1850 was yet another attempt by the nation to set aside its sectional views of slavery in the interest of maintaining a fragile union. But with the Compromise came the Fugitive Slave Act, which put the issue of slavery on the North's doorstep and ignited anti-slavery sentiment. Though the law was detested by many, the election of 1852 saw both the Democrat and Whig parties endorse the 1850 Compromise and the Fugitive Slave Act in service of national unity. The election fractured an already weak and leaderless Whig party along sectional lines, and in the end, it was Franklin K. Pierce, a pro-slavery Democrat from the North, who drew wide enough appeal to win the presidency. Pierce was viewed as a non-confrontational candidate who would maintain the status quo, but Pierce's term would bring an end to another legislative accommodation, the Missouri Compromise, which had limited slavery's expansion and held the divided country together for a generation. Its repeal in May of 1854 with the Kansas-Nebraska Act would leave the issue of slavery to popular opinions of each state. 
the territories of Kansas and Nebraska would become the focal point of conflict between the pro- and anti-slavery forces no longer willing to compromise on the issue. In the wake of a bloody battle for power, the election of 1856 would bring the demise of the Whig Party. From its ashes, two new parties would arise, the Anti-Immigrant American Party, otherwise known as the Know-Nothings, and a predominantly Northern Party, which opposed the expansion of slavery called the Republican Party. The presidential contest of 1856 would bring with it a sectional fight the likes of which the country had never seen. This is episode 18, 1856, The End of Compromise. It's January 22, 1854, and a delegation of congressmen, under cover of darkness, are on their way to the White House to meet with President Pierce. The entourage is led by Stephen Douglas, chair of the Senate Committee on Territories. When they arrive at the White House, they are greeted by Pierce's war secretary, Jefferson Davis. Davis helps the congressmen out of their carriage. Welcome, Senator Douglas. Thank you, Mr. Secretary, for arranging this. I trust that this meeting has remained discreet. We have kept our circle small, Mr. Davis. We are grateful for the President's willingness to meet us at this late hour, and on the Lord's Day, no less. He detests business on Sunday, but given the subject of your visit, he made an exception. The men marched through the candlelit halls of the White House to the library where President Pierce stands stoically by the fireplace. Mr. President, Senator Douglas, gentlemen, I trust you know why we're here, Mr. President. The route of the Transcontinental Railroad has yet to be chosen, and Douglas, the director of the Illinois Central Railroad and a land speculator, wants to start the railroad in his hometown, Chicago. But staunch pro-slavery Democrats have made it clear if Senator Douglas wants Western expansion and a transcontinental railroad, he will have to support them in the spread of slavery. Douglas has therefore drafted a bill to win their support, but he first must secure the support of the president. Gentlemen, you are entering on a serious undertaking. The ground should be well surveyed before the first step is taken. Mr. President, we do not make this decision lightly, but we do believe it is the right course. Douglas wants to repeal the Missouri Compromise, which prevents slavery over the 36-30 parallel in the territory acquired in the Louisiana Purchase. This would allow all future states formed from this territory the ability to decide whether or not to allow slavery themselves. But Pierce is reluctant. The Missouri Compromise has long held this country together. Now you wish me to support your efforts in undermining our national tranquility. The railroad will be built, Mr. President. Progress is coming to the West. If Democrats are to control the territories and the destiny of this nation, slavery must be allowed to expand. I am a president of the country now, Senator, not only the Democrats. But without the Democrats, you would not be president, sir. You have them to thank for your office and them to rely on for re-election. Mr. Douglas, why not take the issue to the courts? If they find the compromise unconstitutional, it will spare Congress and my office any fault in the matter. Douglas is known as the Little Giant. Though he is small in stature, he is known for his ability to win a debate using his fiery passion and skill with words. It must be Congress, Mr. President. Sir, repeal of the compromise is due to the South. We must fight for her. And though I shall be assailed by fanatics without moderation, though every terrible epithet will be applied to me, though I shall be hung in effigy, and this proceeding may end my political career, I have the duty to repeal this unconstitutional policy I am prepared to make the sacrifice. I will do it. Will you? President Pierce has always thought of Douglas as a demagogue, only motivated by self-interest. 
But tonight, Pierce sees him as a true patriot. Mr. Douglas, I will support your measure. On March 4th, 1853, in his inaugural speech, Pierce had made clear to the country his views on slavery, stating, I believe that involuntary servitude, as it exists in different states of this Confederacy, is recognized by the Constitution. I believe that it stands like any other admitted right, and that the states where it exists are entitled to efficient remedies to enforce constitutional provisions. I hold that the laws of 1850, commonly called the Compromise Measures, are strictly constitutional and to be unhesitatingly carried into effect. It would be this view that would formulate Pierce's message to Congress in January of 1854 in support of Stephen Douglas's Nebraska Act. Having secured the written statement from the President at their private conference on the night of January 22nd, Douglas presented a new bill on the Senate floor called the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which created two new territories and repealed the 1820 line that established the Missouri Compromise. Douglas then read, to the dismay of many in the North, President Pierce's written message that the line established under the Missouri Compromise of 1820 was superseded by the principles of the legislation of 1850. Pierce declared the Missouri Compromise inoperative and void. To Douglas, his bill settled the matter of slavery entirely. He felt that his bill would, in all time to come, avoid the perils of a similar agitation by withdrawing the question of slavery from the halls of Congress and the political arena and committing it to the arbitration of those who were immediately interested in and alone responsible for its consequences. Douglas also hoped that his bill would bring him much-needed Southern support to pass his Nebraska Territory Bill and his plan for the Transcontinental Railroad. The repeal of the Missouri Compromise was a lightning rod for both sides of the argument. For Democrats, it was a test of loyalty to the party. Pierce made it known that if anyone was not in favor of the expansion of slavery, they were no longer welcome in the Democratic Party. He said, The administration is committed to the Nebraska bill and will stand by it at all hazards. The principle of this bill will form the test of parties, and the only alternative is either to stand with the democracy or rally under Seward, John Van Buren and company, men Democrats considered anti-slavery zealots. But the measure was still politically tricky. Douglas, in hope of bringing the whole of the Democratic base to their side, made a motion to postpone the vote until popular support was fully behind the measure. Those who opposed the expansion of slavery also supported the measure to postpone a vote. They needed time to sway public opinion away from the Nebraska bill. So avid anti-slavery congressmen Salmon P. Chase, William Henry Seward, and Charles Sumner drafted an address to rile public outcry. The Senate would most likely support Douglas's bill, but the House was more vulnerable and more in touch, these senators believed, with public sentiments against slavery's expansion into the North. In late January 1854, Senator Chase delivered the address called the Appeal of the Independent Democrats. In it, he denounced the attempt by Douglas to undermine the Missouri Compromise. Chase declared, At the present session, a new Nebraska bill has been reported by the Senate Committee on Territories, which, should it unhappily receive the sanction of Congress, will open all the unorganized territories of the Union to the ingress of slavery and convert it into a dreary region of despotism inhabited by masters and slaves. Chase then appealed to the anti-slavery emotions now stirring in the North. We appeal to the people. We warn you that the dearest interests of freedom and the Union are in eminent peril. Demagogues may tell you that the Union can be maintained only by submitting to the demands of slavery. The Union was formed to establish justice, 
and secure the blessings of liberty. When it fails to accomplish these ends, it will be worthless. And when it becomes worthless, it cannot long endure. We entreat you to be mindful of that fundamental maxim of democracy, equal rights and exact justice for all men. Then Chase gave a call to action, recruiting churches to their cause. We implore Christians and Christian ministers to interpose. Their divine religion requires them to behold in every man a brother and to labor for the advancement and regeneration of the human race. Finally, Chase pledged an unwillingness to compromise on the issue, a feeling that by the end of 1854 would soon be shared by much of the North. Chase promised, For ourselves, we shall resist it by speech and vote and with all the abilities which God has given us. Even if overcome in the impending struggle, we shall not submit. We shall go home to our constituents, erect anew the standard of freedom, and call on the people to come to the rescue of the country from the domination of slavery. We will not despair, for the cause of human freedoms is the cause of God. The address worked. A wave of public dissent swept through the North, fueling protests and igniting anti-slavery advocates to take action. At church services across the North, ministers preached against the bill. Many in the North signed their names to anti-bill petitions. Douglas's Nebraska bill had unintended consequences. It had united the North in a common cause, and many Northern Democrats, swayed by Chase, abandoned the party. Disillusioned Whigs, without a sense of direction since the death of their party leader, Henry Clay, rallied to the cause. Also joining the fight were the Free Soilers, who opposed slavery mainly because it created unfair labor competition and stifled wages. These groups united and used their combined influence to stop the Nebraska Bill's passage. After months of both sides rallying support for and against the bill and months of fierce debate and filibusters, the bill came to a vote in both houses. In the Senate, it passed as expected, 37 to 14. And on the 30th of May, the House vote fell on mainly sectional lines. Northern Democrats were split on the bill, narrowly supporting it 44 to 42. All 45 Northern Whigs opposed it. Southern Democrats voted in favor of the bill 57 to 2, and Southern Whigs split their votes 12 to 7 in support. The total House vote was 113 to 100 in favor of the bill, making Kansas and Nebraska new territories with the sovereignty to make their own decisions on slavery. Douglas had won the battle. President Pierce, with an ecstatic Secretary Jefferson Davis beside him, signed the act into law. In Pierce's inaugural speech, he had warned against sectional or ambitious or fanatical excitement. But Pierce and Douglas had, in trying to end the debate on slavery, only exacerbated it and set into motion a bloody battle over the future of the Kansas Territory, in what many historians consider to be the precursor to the Civil War. The immediate reaction to the passage of the act was a reactionary, obstinate refusal by many in the North to honor the Fugitive Slave Act. If the South was going to end a long-standing compromise, the North would stop compromising its beliefs. Compliance with the Fugitive Slave Act was over, and many would find themselves willing to commit insurrection in order to defend those who had escaped from bondage. In ending the Missouri Compromise, the South had thought they had won the argument. They had not. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? 
And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free, like Wild West Extravaganza, a journey back to the fascinating, tumultuous, and often violent world of the American Old West. From famous outlaws like Billy the Kid and Jesse James, to lawmen like Wyatt Earp and Wild Bill Hickok, to trailblazing pioneers and frontiersmen, Wild West Extravaganza tells the true stories of the real-life characters who shaped this iconic era. So saddle up and discover the true history of the American frontier, the good, the bad, and the ugly, ad-free at IntoHistory.com. Just before Halloween in 1985, a pipe bomb exploded in an office building in downtown Salt Lake City, killing a man and leaving the entire city on edge. As the smoke cleared and investigators began the search for answers, it became terrifyingly clear that this was just the beginning. Suddenly, looking for the culprit became a race against time. Hi, I'm Jeremy Schwartz, host of the new true crime history podcast, American Criminal. We take you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side to the American dream. In our latest season, the desperate hunt for a killer leads the authorities through the complicated world of historic document collectors, and eventually right to the door of the Mormon church. Listen to American Criminal, The Salt Lake City Bombings, wherever you get your podcasts. Or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com. It's late Friday, May 26, 1854, in Boston, Massachusetts. And Anthony Burns, a 19-year-old black man, paces nervously in his jail cell. Days earlier, as he was leaving his job at a clothing supply, he was arrested on the street on charges of robbing a jewelry store. He was sure of his innocence, so he gave no resistance. It wasn't until they reached the courthouse and Burns demanded to face his accuser that he discovered there had been no robbery. His heart sank when he realized why he had truly been arrested. His captor was a slave hunter, and Anthony Burns was a fugitive slave. Burns does not know it, but this evening, at the nearby Fannell Hall, the Boston Vigilance Committee has attracted a crowd of over 5,000 abolitionists, all there to protest Burns' arrest. John Swift, a member of the Vigilance Committee, addresses the crowd. They say that this Nebraska bill has repealed the Missouri Compromise of 1820. Well, I say it has repealed the Compromise of 1850. It has repealed the Fugitive Slave Law and repealed the very notion of compromise. In revolutionary times, Samuel Adams led meetings here, riling the people of Boston in the cause of liberty against the British cause. Today, Boston gathers at Fannell Hall to protest for the liberty of Anthony Burns. I say tomorrow morning, we go to the courthouse and give our own verdict. They think they are the law? Well, gentlemen, there is another law. It is in your hands and your arms. Just then, the door of the hall bursts open. A man rushes in with news. A mob of Negroes is assembled in the court square. They're trying to rescue Burns. The crowd quickly pours out of Fannell Hall and into the lamplit streets. Meanwhile, at the courthouse, Burns watches out the window of his cell as a crowd of black protesters press toward the courthouse doors. But the marshal's deputies manage to keep them at bay. Legally a fugitive, Burns knows that justice is not on his side. In his shackles, he can't help but recall his time in bondage. 
It does not look like the rescue will be successful. He falls into despair. But then Burns hears more commotion on the streets. His heart lifts as he sees hundreds of white men bearing axes, cleavers, revolvers, marching on the courthouse. It seems all of Boston is there to save him. The marshal shouts at the growing crowd, Stay back, or my men will open fire. The marshal's men stand firm outside, fire warning shots, but the crowd is undeterred. Seven or eight men, both black and white, carry a large joist which they use as a makeshift battering ram. Stop! Turn around! The marshal's orders have no effect. He turns to his men. Get ready, boys. No one sets foot in this courthouse. Inside, the marshal's men arm themselves and prepare for the invaders. Suddenly, there is gunfire in the street, where outside, a dozen policemen have arrived on horseback to assist the marshal and are firing warning shots. They begin disarming and arresting the protesters, but the chaos at the courthouse doors continues. The marshal and his men get ready, sure at any moment the doors will splinter. Here they come. In his cell, Anthony Burns witnessed a bloody melee that night, as officers armed with clubs and cutlasses defended the courthouse and beat back the would-be rescuers. In the aftermath, countless were injured and one deputy shot. To prevent further violence, President Pierce sent in federal troops. On Monday morning, May 29th, when Anthony Burns' trial began, the courthouse resembled a fort. A strong military presence prevented any further attempts to free Burns. His trial would continue, but his future would not be decided by a jury. If it were, his fellow citizens of Boston surely would have ruled in his favor. Instead, the decision was left solely to a commissioner, Judge Loring. In Burns' defense, the prominent lawyer Richard Henry Dana depicted the gravity of the decision. The eyes of many millions are upon you, sir. You are to do an act which will hold its place in the history of America. May your judgment be for liberty and not slavery. But to the dismay of everyone in Boston, Judge Loring ultimately decided to abide by the fugitive slave law and return Burns to his Virginian slaveholder. As they escorted him to the docks, 50,000 Bostonians wearing black clothes of mourning gathered to witness the injustice. Burns sailed away from the freedom of Boston towards a future of oppression. John Swift, a member of the vigilance committee that marched to the courthouse that night, described the scene. It was too much for me, to my inmost soul. I felt the deep degradation of that moment. Not only had Anthony Burns been deprived of his rights, I had lost something. Had lost the proud privilege of saying that I had life in a free commonwealth. On July 4th, 1854, a month after Burns was taken from Boston, a rally was held in Framingham, Massachusetts. There, poet Henry David Thoreau spoke to the crowd, lamenting, Will mankind never learn that policy is not morality? That it never secures any moral right, but considers merely what is expedient? Chooses the available candidate, who is invariably the devil? And what right have his constituents to be surprised because the devil does not behave like an angel of light? What is wanted is men, not of policy, but who recognize a higher law than the Constitution. But also in Massachusetts during the summer of 1854, a new political order would begin. With the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the collapse of the Whigs, Northerners were seeking a viable opposition party to the Democrats. Two such parties would arise. Many in Massachusetts were angry, having seemingly lost their own sovereignty to the will of Southern interests, 
forced to abide by the Fugitive Slave Act and witnessing the possible expansion of slavery into the West. At the same time, a new wave of immigrants from Ireland and Germany reached American shores. These primarily Catholic immigrants stirred resentment as they found work in their new home, being accused of stealing American jobs and, more perniciously, scheming to make America subservient to the Pope. This anti-Catholic sentiment had been simmering since the country's founding, but came to a boil in the mid-1800s. Men seeking to combat the purported Catholic influence started several secret societies like the Order of United Americans and the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner. These societies grew in support and scope and soon united to form what was eventually called the American Party. But that party was founded from secret roots. Members of these societies, when asked about their activities, were instructed to reply only, I know nothing. So quickly, the society members and the party they formed became derisively known as the Know-Nothings. The name stuck. But they were politically successful. In the 1854 state elections, the Know-Nothings swept the state of Massachusetts and, once in office, enacted a flurry of reform. Most of their attention was paid to an anti-Catholic nativist agenda, often fueled by outrageous conspiracy theories. Massachusetts Know-Nothings proposed legislation to restrict naturalized citizens' ability to vote and wanted to raise the residency period required to become an American citizen from five years to 21. Know-Nothing legislators also created a board of alien commissioners to monitor immigrants and required that children read the Protestant King James Bible in school every day. But the Know-Nothings were also largely a working-class party, seeking reform in aspects of everyday life. They bought textbooks for public schools, increased funding for libraries. They started the state's first reform school for juvenile delinquents. Know-Nothings fought for women's rights, allowing them more property rights and better standing in divorce courts. And they enacted temperance measures, restricting the sale of alcohol. In the national elections of November 1854, Know-Nothing candidates continued their success. Now formally organized as the American Party, Know-Nothings gained 51 seats in the House, all taken from Democrats. In total, the Know-Nothings won more seats in the House than any other third party in history, ensuring that one of their ranks, Nathaniel Banks, won election as Speaker of the House. But their moral crusade did not include an official stance against slavery, and this would give room to another party. Reaction against the Kansas-Nebraska Act would unite the anti-slavery factions of former Whigs and Northern Democrats, who in the 1854 election were put on the ballot under the ambiguous name the Opposition Party. In 1854, this Opposition Party won a staggering 100 seats in the House, giving them the majority in the 34th Congress. In the upcoming election of 1856, their national convention would formally adopt an official name, the Republican Party. The name Republican had appeared in a June 1854 editorial by the famous Whig newspaperman Horace Greeley. It was his attempt to define the movement of former Whigs and Southern Free Soilers who were against the expansion of slavery. He said, Some simple name like Republican would more fitly designate those who had united to restore the Union to its true mission of champion and promulgator of liberty rather than propagandist of slavery. The name was a nod to Democratic-Republican Thomas Jefferson, a strong proponent of personal liberty. And though the Republican Party would fall short of calling for an end to slavery, this new party would become the home of many radical abolitionists, and many who would in the coming years be convinced. For the moment, though, abolition and emancipation were controversial notions, 
even violently so. The midterm elections in the winter of 1854 were most consequential in the new territory of Kansas. Stephen Douglas had hoped that his popular sovereignty bill would put an end to the slavery debate. Instead, the midterm elections of 1854 only added fuel to a fire already sparked by the repeal of the Missouri Compromise. Once Douglas's Kansas-Nebraska Act was passed and the decision of slavery was left to its people, Kansas became the focal point for the slavery debate. Nebraska was already well on its way to becoming a free state, but Kansas' fate was uncertain. So in hopes of swaying popular opinion, both pro- and anti-slavery factions flooded Kansas. Anti-slavery Northerners sought to quickly settle the state and sway the vote in their favor. Meanwhile, a large group of pro-slavery forces, known as the Border Ruffians, flooded the Kansas Territory from neighboring Missouri, an influx orchestrated largely by Missouri slaveholders who did not want a free state on their border. Both sides of the debate also rushed to the polls. Voter fraud was committed on a massive scale. Though there were only 2,905 legal voters in the Kansas Territory, over 6,000 votes were cast. By the time the votes were tallied, Kansas was declared a slave territory and a pro-slavery government was formed. But many cried foul and refused to accept the results of the vote. Both sides took up arms and formed militias. Abolitionists across the North provided arms to the free state militia. Calling the election fraudulent and the pro-slavery government illegitimate, these free staters passed the Topeka Constitution, which created a second government and outlawed slavery in Kansas. President Pierce wasted no time backing the pro-slavery government. The situation soon boiled over into violence in what some considered to be the first blows of the Civil War. The first shots came on November 21, 1855, when a pro-slavery settler shot and killed a free stater. This sparked a series of arrests and attempted lynchings that progressively escalated until May of 1856, when a group of deputized pro-slavery men rode into the fortified free state town of Lawrence, Kansas. The pro-slavery faction considered the town a hotbed of free state agitators. So under the guise of assisting a federal marshal with the arrest of an escaped free stater, the pro-slavery band of deputies quickly devolved into an army of pillagers who sacked the town. Free state newspaper offices were destroyed. A free state hotel was burned. Anti-slavery agitators were captured. The South was celebratory and the North indignant. On May 19, 1856, on the Senate floor, the avid abolitionist Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts admonished the sacking of Lawrence in a heated speech called The Crime Against Kansas. He laid the blame for the situation on what he called murderous robbers from Missouri, hirelings picked from the drunken spew and vomit of an uneasy civilization. He then attacked Democratic Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois and Andrew Butler of South Carolina for inciting the crisis in Kansas. He called Douglas a noisome, squat, and nameless animal, not a proper model for an American senator. Andrew Butler was not present in the Senate, so he did not witness the venom Sumner spit in his direction. Sumner shouted, Senator Butler has chosen a mistress, I mean the harlot, slavery. A few days later, on the 22nd of May, Senator Butler's cousin, Representative Preston Brooks, viciously defended his kin. He approached Sumner at his desk in the Senate chamber and said, You've libeled my state and slandered my white-haired old relative, Senator Butler, and I've come to punish you for it. Brooks then took his gold-tipped cane, the type made for disciplining dogs, 
and struck Sumner multiple times about the head. He hit Sumner so hard the cane shattered. Brooks was unhinged. His wild volley of blows was only stopped when several men restrained him. Sumner cried out, I am almost dead, almost dead. Covered in blood, Sumner had to be carried out of the Senate. Both men were called heroes by the respective camps, Preston Brooks for taking matters into his own hands and Charles Sumner for suffering on behalf of the cause. But days later, news of an even more horrific act of violence in Kansas would soon overshadow the Brooks-Sumner incident, and it would shock the nation to its core. If you are a careful Wicked Game listener, you know in the credits I mentioned my friend Professor Greg Jackson and his podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. It's a great show. But one way it can doesn't suck even more is when you listen to it without ads. You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game, all episodes of History That Doesn't Suck, and all episodes of many more great history podcasts without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a deeply researched chronological survey of American history from a trained academic who also knows how to tell a story. Plus, in addition to ad-free listening to one of the best American history podcasts out there, you get scores of bonus episodes at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job. And we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's almost midnight on May 24, 1856, in Franklin County, Kansas. A group of eight men creep along the Pottawatomie Creek in the darkness of night. In the distance, candlelight from a small house glows through the trees. The men sneak through the underbrush toward the lights. This is the home of James P. Doyle, a pro-slavery man from Tennessee. The hour is late and visitors are infrequent, so instead of answering the door, Doyle calls out from inside. Yes, what is it? What do you want? Can you tell me the way to the Wilkinson place? But the man that knocked is not looking for Wilkinson's home. He knows exactly where Wilkinson lives. In fact, abolitionist John Brown knows the name and location of every pro-slavery man along the creek. He and his family settled Kansas to fight a war against slavery. And incensed at the sacking of Lawrence, Brown is now ready to fight fire with fire and strike terror in the hearts of the pro-slavery people. Tonight, he and his sons, along with several other abolitionists, are ready to take an eye for an eye. Doyle, not knowing of Brown's true intent, lets his guard down and opens the door. Immediately, Brown and his men seize the opportunity and storm the house. No, stay back! Stay away from my family! The Doyle children huddle around their mother, sons the age of 22, 20, and 16, and Doyle's young daughter. Brown barks his orders, take them outside. Brown's men grab Doyle and his three sons. A panicked Mrs. Doyle throws her arms around the youngest of the three, begging Brown not to take him. Brown ultimately spares the boy, but orders the other two out along with their father. They walk them a short distance down the road. Doyle pleads with his captor, 
Why are you doing this? What have I done wrong to you? You've wronged Kansas, Mr. Doyle. You've wronged decency and liberty. You've wronged God. This is his justice. John Brown takes his pistol and aims it at Doyle's forehead. Please take my life, but spare my boys. Spare them. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 21. Prepare slaughter for his children for the sins of their fathers, that they do not rise, nor possess the land, nor fill the face of the world with cities. John Brown shot James Doyle in the forehead. Then Brown's sons set upon the younger Doyles with their swords. One of the young Doyles was struck down in an instant, but the other attempted escape and was pursued and caught. He died a frightening death with his head gashed open and his arms hacked off completely. But the violence did not end there. Brown's company then attacked two more homes, slashing to death a total of five men in the massacre. Brown's attack only escalated what would come to be called Bloody Kansas. By the end of the Kansas conflict, some 200 men were killed. The violence in Kansas escalated even as Washington and President Pierce remained paralyzed. As the election of 1856 got underway, Bloody Kansas doomed Democratic President Pierce's nomination. The events of Kansas and his inaction made Pierce look inept, a failed leader incapable of de-escalating the crisis. One Democrat said of Pierce, he has no real strength, but there is much weakness in him personally. There is undoubtedly an active opposition to Pierce in our ranks, which we are bound to respect. That opposition rallied around one man, James Buchanan. On June 5th at the Democratic National Convention, Buchanan was nominated as the Democratic Party's candidate for president. His running mate was Congressman John Breckinridge of Kentucky. Buchanan had served as a congressman, senator, and secretary of state under President Polk. But he was not chosen for his resume. Instead, he was chosen because the conflict in Kansas was widely unpopular, and Buchanan, being the minister to Britain, was out of the country at the time. His hands were clean. The decision of who would face Buchanan was settled on June 19th when the Republicans held their first national convention. They followed the old Whig Party strategy of nominating a war hero. Known as the Pathfinder, California Senator John C. Fremont was the famed explorer who had mapped much of the American West. He had also helped win California during his service in the Mexican-American War. The Republicans selected New Jersey Senator William Dayton as his running mate and adopted a platform of opposition to the expansion of slavery. Their campaign slogan was Free Soil, Free Speech, and Fremont. The anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic know-nothings nominated former President Millard Fillmore as their nominee. Fillmore had not sought the presidency and was out of the country during the nomination, but he reluctantly accepted. Fillmore, like Buchanan, was chosen for his lack of connection to the Kansas debacle. Quickly, the campaign grew dirty. The Know-Nothings in 1856 would launch a series of attacks against Fremont in the press. In what might be called the first presidential birther scandal, the Know-Nothings accused Fremont of being a foreigner. Though it was true his father was French-Canadian, his mother was a Virginian. These attacks also revealed that Fremont was an illegitimate child. But of all the salvos launched by the Know-Nothings, none had more traction against Fremont than his suspected Catholicism. He was called a Romanist and a Papist. In his defense, Republicans stumped hard for Fremont, and many, including abolitionist preacher Henry Ward Beecher, author Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother, personally vouched for him being a Protestant. Republicans ran an aggressive campaign. With chants of We Shall Overcome, they promised to defeat the powerful Democratic Party. 
They lauded Fremont's youth and vigor in contrast to the 63-year-old Buchanan. They held rallies and parades. Stumping for Fremont were the popular senators Sam and Chase and Charles Sumner. Abraham Lincoln pitched in, too, giving almost 50 speeches for the Republican candidate. Meanwhile, the Democrats ran an entirely different kind of campaign. Aside from calling Fremont young and inexperienced, they campaigned on fear, painting Republicans as radicals who would end slavery for good. In Indiana, Democrats held a parade featuring young girls in white dresses holding banners reading, Fathers, Save Us from Nigger Husbands. Many claimed that if Fremont were elected, the Union would dissolve. Buchanan embraced this feeling, saying, This race ought to be run on the question of union or disunion. This sentiment was only made worse when many Republicans called for the speedy, peaceful, and equitable dissolution of the existing Union, seeing the slavery issue as unreparable and disunion the only solution. Ultimately, in the presidential election of 1856, the threat of succession pushed many to support Buchanan, hoping again to maintain the status quo and keep the Union. The country had already had a taste of conflict with bloody Kansas, and many sought to avoid more bloodshed. Buchanan would win the South, there was no doubt. So for Democrats, most of the heavy campaigning was done in the North, in five key swing states that would determine the next president. Illinois, Indiana, Maryland, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. In November of 1856, when the votes were tallied, Fremont didn't win a single Southern state. In the North, he won 11 free states. Though he gave the Republicans a great first run as a party, it was ultimately not enough to overcome Buchanan. Of the swing states, Buchanan carried all but Maryland, which went to know-nothing candidate Millard Fillmore. It would be the first and last electoral votes the know-nothings would ever win. After the 1856 election, the know-nothings would crumble and not return to make a presidential run in the election of 1860. Though the Kansas-Nebraska Act had damaged the Democrats by further entrenching sectionalism and uniting anti-slavery factions, Buchanan still emerged victorious, though it was far from a landslide. Buchanan only received 45% of the popular vote. The newly formed Republican Party had lost, but they had made a strong showing, leaving many Southern Democrats afraid for the future. That fear in the South would carry through much of Buchanan's term. In the North, the overwhelming feeling throughout Buchanan's presidency would be rage. Escalations in the slavery struggle in both Congress and the courts would push the country to the brink. The election of 1856 had seen the birth of what would come to be called the third two-party system. It also saw the beginnings of a sectional struggle between North and South that by the election of 1860 would rip the country apart. This is episode 18 of American Elections Wicked Game, 1856, the end of compromise. On the next episode, the election of 1860, with the country on the brink of civil war, Two lawyers from Illinois fight it out on the campaign trail, Democrat Stephen Douglas and Republican Abraham Lincoln. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts also ad-free, like Her Half of History 
Because even though Hillary Clinton may not have made history when she ran for president in 2016, there have always been women who seized power, spied for their country, created artistic masterpieces, even escaped slavery. Her half of history is perfect for all those who sat in history class and wondered, what were the women doing all this time? Because the answer is a lot. Get her half of history, Wicked Game, and many others ad-free at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details. And while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Elections Wicked Game is an airship production, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Sound designed by Derek Barons. Music by Lindsey Graham. Co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Written and researched by Eric Archilla. Fact-checking by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar from the podcast History That Doesn't Suck. 